we enter this week into the season of Lent and that 40-day journey toward the cross and empty grave. We're continuing to follow Jesus as he travels from Galilee where he grew up to Jerusalem where he's lifted up. And along the way, we're listening to the stories Jesus tells in order to allow them to reshape our imagination, to open our eyes to the kingdom of God and imagine our way in learning along the way what it means to live in light of God's abundant grace. This week's parable, though, is going to feel a bit like whiplash. Last week's was one of the best known and best loved of Jesus' parables. This week is probably the least known and most confounding. It is not going to make a lot of sense on first hearing. But in some ways, that's a gift to us. Because it's a reminder that the Bible isn't a set of flashcards for us to let our eyes pass over, memorize, and move on. The Bible isn't a fast food meal at a drive through meant for quick and easy consumption. We aren't instructed to just let our eyes pass over the page, take the simplest meaning we can find, and move on our way. But instead, we're commanded to eat this book. And in Psalm 1, blessing is proclaimed on those who meditate on God's instruction day and night. And meditate has a connotation of a satiated lion purring over its catch, of a dog gnawing on a bone. So let this parable, which is confusing, be an invitation to come to all of Scripture less as a drive-by attraction and more as a lavish feast. Come in, take a seat at the table, chew and savor this meal, ruminate on it like a cow chewing its cud. Even still, this parable might be the gristle of that feast, but let's not just move along, shrug our shoulders and give up. Let's spend this morning chewing on it together. Before we do any of that, though, let's pray for God to guide us along the way. Lord, it's in your light that we see light, the psalmist says. And we believe that it's in your truth that we find freedom and your way that we find peace. So come and shine upon us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. Jesus also said to the disciples, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was squandering his estate. So he called the manager in and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Give me a report of the, your administration. You can no longer serve as my manager. Now the household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master has fired me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed as manager, people will welcome me into their homes. So one by one, the manager sent for each person that owed his master money. And he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said, take your contract. Write, sit down quickly and write, 450 gallons. 
Then the manager said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a thousand bushels of wheat. And he said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What in the world is going on in this story? And what are we to make of it? There's a wealthy estate holder with a number of debtors who owe him a lot. And the estate is large enough that he has a manager to oversee things on his behalf. And one day the master is told by someone that his manager has been squandering the estate. Cheating the master. And so he calls him in and fires him. And he demands the book, the accounts, so that he can see what everyone owes and where they are in the status of repaying that debt. And in a silent admission of guilt, the manager leaves. And while going to retrieve the books to bring back to the master, he contemplates his future and comes up with a plan. He realizes he still has the books, that no one else knows he's been fired yet, and he has a little bit of time. So if he acts quickly, it might just work. He has his servants call in the people that owe his master money one by one. And he has them come in, asks, how much do you owe? And quickly in their own hands, rewrite massive discounts on the debt. And remember the debtors don't know he's been fired. They think he's acting on his master's behalf. And so they go out celebrating their good fortune and more so the generosity of this master One of the greatest virtues for a Middle Eastern nobleman in this culture is generosity. And he is being praised. His his, uh, praise is being sung in the streets. Parties are probably happening. These are huge amounts that are forgiven. The equivalent of about a year and a half's wages. So take what you make or made in a year, multiply it by one and a half. That's the discount they get in a moment. And when the master finds out about this whole scheme... He doesn't correct the books, demand the full amount back. He doesn't throw the manager in jail or sell him and his family into slavery to pay back what he's lost. He commends his dishonest manager for acting cleverly or shrewdly or wisely or prudently, all the same word. What in the world is going on in this story? And what is Jesus trying to tell us? Does he really want us to lie, cheat, and steal our way into the kingdom of God? To take advantage of other people, however possible, be dishonest? How are we to make sense of this parable? Well, there's a lot of different options. Uh, There's a a scholar named Klein Snodgrass who wrote a a very exhaustive study of all Jesus' parables. And for this one in particular, he lists 22 different possible interpretations. 22. That means no one has any idea what to do with this. 
We'll try on a couple this morning and see how they feel to us. Here's the first option. I call this the dishonest master because it turns things around a little bit. See, in the day, Jews were prohibited um, to lend to one another at interest called usury. They couldn't lend and charge any interest to one another. But there was a way to get around this if you lent in kind. It's not money. We're not charging interest, but you're going to pay me a lot more wheat back than what I gave to you. And that the master's potentially engaged in this dishonest practice, bending his way around the law. And there's massive amounts of interest that have accumulated on the loans. And so what the manager is doing is he's uh, writing off the interest and correcting the debts to just be the principal. Now, we like this retelling of the parable because it makes the master the bad guy and the manager a good guy. And no one's really harmed. And it's sort of a, a Robin Hood kind of moment where thieves are, are being clever against one another. And one finally comes out on top and he backs the master into a corner because he can't bring him to court without admitting he's been charging exorbitant interest. We like this one. It has a poetic justice feel to it. The only problem is that the parable itself says nothing about debts and interest and principle. And if the master's the dishonest one, then why would someone bring a charge against his manager to him? If he's dishonest too, why is he going to care? The, the manager's just acting like his master. So this one's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure that it works. Here's another option. Um, we call it the, the generous manager. The manager uh, in these huge discounts is just writing off what's essentially his commission. That instead of like loans, this is much more likely to be rent payment for using the farmland the estate holder, the master, owns. So they pay back a portion of what they raise on his land back to him. And the estate manager, the steward in the middle, gets a cut. And what he's doing is taking his cut out of the equation. Now, we like this one, too, because the master is not really a bad guy. Um, and he gets everything that's owed to him. The manager is a really good guy. He's magnanimous. He's giving up what's his in order to secure some future goodwill with the rest of the town. And the uh, townspeople, the debtors, aren't really cheated either. Everyone comes out looking a lot better in this version. The only problem is that, again, there's no mention of commission. And in fact, Jesus calls the manager a dishonest manager. And if that's true, and Jesus calls him that, we need to stop trying to twist the story around to somehow make him a good guy and make us feel better about the fact that Jesus says he's commended for this despicable behavior. So let's try another example. This one uh, we call the merciful master. And I like this one. There, there's something to this one. Because when the master finds out that his manager is squandering his estate, all he does is fire him. And what we might miss is that we'd expect him to do far more. You'd expect him to be jailed. In the culture, this is the moment when he and his family would be sold as slaves to pay back the debt that they owed. But the master doesn't do this. He just fires him. He chooses mercy. He doesn't give him the punishment he deserves. And the manager realizes his master's mercy. 
and decides to bet everything on that mercy, taking further advantage of him in order to save himself, betting that he will bear the cost of redeeming him too. And in the end, the master does. When the whole rest of the scheme is found out, he doesn't punish him. He again chooses mercy. He commends him and in essence buys his freedom, paying the cost for his future well-being while also benefiting with generosity many other members of the community. There's something I like about that. There's something about that that's starting to sound a lot more like Jesus. And it sounds like something we can begin to get behind. But if it's true, then Jesus is essentially telling us to keep on sinning all the more that grace may abound. And not only does Paul directly tell us not to do that, But it doesn't make sense with the way we understand God's grace and how it renews us from the inside out to grow within us uh, a generous and uh, grateful spirit to give back to God and follow God's ways, grateful for what God has done for us. And it sort of makes God out to be a pushover. We just keep taking more and more advantage of God and God just keeps dealing with it. So there's something good about this one but I'm not sure in the end exactly what to do with this. Because also, if the master was merciful, why not just plead for mercy? Why not just ask for the mercy if you know he's merciful? Just say, please don't fire me. There's no other prospect for my future well-being. I'll, I'll be destitute, please. Or at least give me a good letter of recommendation and help me find another position with someone else, please. But instead, he just cheats him out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Betting on mercy. There's something in here, but I'm not sure that's it. Here's another option to go completely in the other direction. This was from Julian the Apostate. He was a fourth century Roman emperor who grew up Christian, but at 20 converted to paganism and spent his time short as it was, as an emperor trying to reestablish paganism within the Roman Empire. He said that this parable is proof that Jesus was teaching his disciples to be dishonest and conniving, that they should not be trusted and should not be a part of polite Roman society. They should be kicked out. So maybe that's what it means. And maybe we've all been wasting our time being honest and helpful to others. I'm not sure. One other option, an interpretation of the parable that says the lesson is that ends justify means, right? Sure, the manager was dishonest. Sure, he cheated his master out of a ton, but the end result was good. He was providing for his own well-being. This was the only way to, and look at how the other members of the community benefited these massive discounts, the, the good was for so many people that it must have been worth the dishonest means. And so maybe it's fine for us too to, to cheat a little on our taxes here or there to get clever with it to make a little more money because we'll give part of that to the church. Maybe it's okay to get engaged in some shady investing or to take advantage of some other people or be just ruthless in business and a little dishonest to squeeze wealth as much as possible. Just give it to the church in the end and, and it's fine. Is that what the parable says? 
Jesus does say, use worldly wealth to secure friendships so that when it's gone, you'll reach your eternal home. Make as much as you can, however you can. Give it all away and you'll get into heaven. What in the world does this parable mean? What is Jesus trying to tell us? This is the gristle. And we need to really chew on it, gnaw at it, and wrestle with it. So let's keep wrestling. I'm not sure what exactly to do with this parable because there are a lot of different things that there are good parts of, but as a whole, I'm not sure we can go down those roads. Let's look back at what Jesus has to say about the parable because there's at least a few threads there that we can pull on. At the end, and if you have your Bibles open, it's verses 8 and 9 of Luke chapter 16. This is Jesus' commentary about the story that he just told. He says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong to the light. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. There's a distinction that the master commends not the manager's dishonesty, but the wisdom of it. Clever, shrewd, wise, prudent, they're all the same word in Greek. He's not being commended because of what he did, lying and cheating. He's commended for acting shrewdly, wisely. There's something about how he does what he does, not what he does. We're not told, do what he did, but that it was wise. And we'd, be, we'd do well to be wise too. So how was this dishonesty wise. I can see a couple of ways. Three, in fact, it's a sermon. We got to have three. First, he knows his situation and acts desperately. He knows when his master fires him, his dire situation, his silent admits his guilt He knows he is caught, he's fired, he is destitute and in need. He cannot work his way out and he cannot beg his way out. He needs to find another way. He knows he's lost, stuck, sunk. And so he acts desperately. He puts everything he has behind his plan. He puts it into action quickly because he knows there's only a little bit of time. He's desperate. He gets right to the work of doing the most important thing. There is no distraction. There is nothing competing for his attention. He gets to work desperately because he knows the situation is desperate. And there is something very wise about knowing your situation and acting accordingly. Jesus urges us to be wise, to know our situation, that we too are caught red-handed, that we are broken sinners who have disobeyed God and God's ways. We have walked away and squandered what God has given us, using it for ourselves, and we are caught. There is only a little while left to do anything about it in the grand scheme of things. When is the last time 
that you felt the same desperation to do something about your life and sin and faith as this manager feels to do something about his life. Too often, I am pretty relaxed about it. I'm tolerant of the sin that comes from my own heart. My love is distracted and I wander off thinking about other things and wasting time on things that will not ultimately matter. We play around with the things of this world, forgetting how dire the situation is. He knows his situation and acts with desperation to do something about it. And that is wise. Here's a second thing that's wise. It's related. He aligns all of his cunning, his skill, his effort, everything toward his future well-being. Right? That's part of the desperation, but it's distinct. He, He takes everything that he has, everything at his disposal, and points it at the one thing that matters. How am I going to be okay in the end? And how can I use all of my cunning and creativity to get there? Jesus says that's wise. And we would do well to do the same. The children of light, that's the Jews and and later we interpret that as the followers of Jesus. The children of light need to have the same level of focus toward getting what they desire as the children of this world do. Look at the effort, the skill, and the creativity, the cunning that the world puts into gaining wealth and power and fame. It is endless, the creativity and the energy put into it in this world. What if, what if we had the same level of focus? We went to the same lengths to follow Jesus instead of just seeking the same things and using our leftover time and energy and talent for Jesus? What if we could align all of our effort and skill and creativity and cunning and time and possessions toward achieving the kingdom of God, to bearing witness to it and using all of our resources to attain it, to lay up treasures in heaven, as Jesus says elsewhere, to use everything we have and everything at our disposal and point them at the kingdom of God instead of ourselves. Point them toward our future well-being and our ultimate end and good. The manager acts wisely, seeing the situation for what it is, acting with desperation, and focusing and aligning everything he has toward the one thing that will matter. But there's a third way in which his actions are wise. Because in doing all of that, He also trusts his master's generous grace. There's something remarkably generous about the master. There is something. We said earlier, when he finds out what the manager's been doing, he he simply fires him. When he finds out the scheme at the end, he commends him. At neither point does he throw him in jail like he should. At no point does he sell him and his family into slavery to pay back what's owed. There's something remarkably merciful and gracious. And 
there's a parallel between this story and last week's. And we should notice in reading our Bibles that between chapter 15 and 16, there's no scene break. Nothing changes. Jesus was telling the parable of lost things. And then it says, and he also tells the Pharisees. It's the same setting. He's just finished that story and he tells this one. And in there was a story of a younger son who squandered his father's estate and found mercy. And here is a manager who squanders his master's estate and finds mercy. The manager must have known working all these years for his master, that he was merciful. He's experienced it some. And he begins to wonder how deep that mercy and grace might go. Because if he's going to get out of this, he needs it to go all the way down. He sees only one way out. Sharing that same generosity and grace, the forgiveness of debt with others in the community, welcoming them into his master's party of welcome and mercy and grace to trust that grace enough to enter it himself, though he must go through sin and hell to get there. He trusts his master's generous grace. And Jesus tells us that that's wise. Now, in a practical and lived out sense, How deep do we live like the grace of God goes? Do we tiptoe into the shallow ends of it, hoping we don't exhaust it somehow, or like the older brother, just put our heads down and behave long enough so that we'll receive the inheritance at the end? Or do we fall into it? Knowing that it is wide and deep and long, Many of us taste of that grace when we come to Jesus and surrender our lives to him, when we recognize we need him to forgive our sins, to make us whole, to save us. We experience that mercy like the manager when he's fired and we don't receive the punishment we deserve. But then we go out and stop living like that grace is so. We stop entrusting our lives to that grace. And we find ourselves less likely to forgive those around us than we'd like to be forgiven by them. We find ourselves much more likely to hold grudges over others. We find ourselves willing to confess certain sins, but very quick to hide others, to pretend they are not there, to use everything at our disposal to just cover them up. We grasp after control, control over our future, our safety, our comfort, our children, our families, until that control breaks us. We stop trusting the grace we proclaim. The manager had a hunch that his master's grace went deeper than he could imagine. He knew that his situation was desperate. He sees only one way out. And so he focuses and aligns everything that he has, betting everything, not on himself, but on the grace of his master. And Jesus, 
who is at this moment eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, who has been playing fast and loose with his master's record of debts, who is telling them that the massive debts of their sins will be forgiven if only they repent and bet everything on their master's grace, who presides at the feast of such generosity, Jesus then turns to the Pharisees and to us and says, this is wisdom. Will we go and do likewise? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in a strange way, we thank you for parables and portions of the Bible like this that are confusing because they invite us deeper in. They invite us to truly consider your word, to step back and pause and listen to what you may have to say to us. And while we are still a little unclear about what this parable means and what you say this morning, There are threads here that are powerful. We thank you for the reminder of how desperate our situation is. For the example of one who aligns all of his focus and energy and effort toward achieving what truly matters. And for this picture of the grace of Jesus Christ that is wider and deeper and longer than we had ever previously thought or hoped. So Lord, give us the grace to see our own situation. Give us the courage and the fortitude to point our lives in the direction of your kingdom. And Lord, give us the greater courage to trust the depths of your grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.